We're going to be in Revelation 22 this morning. It's 1327. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this shouldn't be hard to find. Right. 22, last chapter of the book. I'm a little excited and a little nervous to preach from Revelation. Just put whatever asterisk you need next to this sermon. Just go ahead and do it. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the end. That sounds so ominous, right? The end. Like there's some giant meteor headed our way or something. Uh, but that's not what I mean at all. Uh, what I mean is the ultimate end, where Jesus has returned and heaven and earth are fully rejoined as one and there is shalom where everything is as it should be. The end where God's creation has been fully restored and the citizens of God's kingdom experience the full realization of our hope. This is a good end. In fact, it, it's a new beginning. Whatever, uh, and whether we realize it or not, it has already begun. It was launched when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. During his ministry around Galilee and Jerusalem and other parts of Judea, Jesus taught about this ultimate end, calling it the kingdom of God. And we've seen this terminology come up again and again as we've looked at various parts of the Bible. We've seen both the promise of it and its arrival. And today we're going to look at the ultimate end of this, the final chapter of the kingdom of God, literally. But as I said, also the new beginning, the start of what we call eternity. And we're going to do this as a sort of foundation for our series on healing that we're going to begin in two weeks. And so two weeks from today, uh, we'll start talking about different examples of healing in the Bible and what they mean and what they look like. It's uh, a means of understanding, I think, the big picture of what healing is all about and how it's woven into the very fabric of God's kingdom. Now, before we jump in, I need to say a couple things about the book of Revelation so that we're all on the same page. Uh, because there are a lot of misconceptions floating around about how this book works and what it means. Uh, so first things first, in Revelation 1.1, John called it the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word he used there is apocalypsis. Okay? We would say apocalypse, that's the kind of general term. And in our day and time, that word is wrapped up in all kinds of crazy imagery, right? It's in our books and movies and TV shows and in our art. I almost thought about pulling up some pictures, just typing in the word to Google apocalypse and showing y'all some of the pictures because they're crazy, right? If you do a search online for those images of the word apocalypse, the stuff that comes up is frightening. There's darkness. There's abandoned cities with smoke rising from the buildings. There's mushroom clouds rising in the distance. Even if you happen to come across sort of a more biblical type of image, it's likely the four horsemen of the apocalypse or a seven-headed dragon. None of these things are what the Greek word apocalypse means, though. 
So let's define that word real quick. In the Greek, it simply means an unveiling, an uncovering or a bringing to light. In other words, it's the idea of sort of pulling back a curtain or, or a sheet so that what is behind it may be seen clearly. So as we get going this morning, we need to keep in mind that an apocalypse isn't a horrific end. It's an unveiling. It's where we see the truth. And instead of being frightened or anxious about it, we should be thankful for it. Because it's meant to reveal things to us that we might not have fully understood otherwise. Which is interesting given that the book of Revelation and its connection to other parts of the Bible, it produces either some of the most often misunderstood ideas or the most hotly debated. In other words, people seem to either have completely wrong ideas about it, what it means, or they have such clashing opinions that they get into arguments over it. Neither of these realities makes it seem like anything has been fully revealed, right? On the contrary, it seems more mysterious than ever, like nobody knows for certain what's going on. And to be honest, that's a realistic conclusion. Whatever John revealed to the people of his time seems to have gotten mixed up or lost since then. And I know people now who would call themselves a uh, pan-millennialist. You ever heard that term? Talking pan out. That's what people say. Maybe we should hold on to that. Uh, but how can we get anything reliable from the book of Revelation? Well, there's a couple of things that can help us, I think. First, we need to know that this book is written in a particular style. It's a particular genre of writing that, that does a certain thing. In the ancient world, apocalypse was a genre of literature with a sort of a narrative framework. It told a story, uh, but the story wasn't meant to be taken literally. And that's key. We're not supposed to take any of this imagery literally. So when it says that Jesus has a double-edged sword sticking out of his mouth, he doesn't really have a double-edged sword sticking. That's about the word that he says, right? There's this imagery that happens. Uh, so what would happen then in these cases is that there's some supernatural being, an angel, a messenger of God, would bring a message to a human about what was really going on in the world around them and in the spiritual reality at work in that moment. It happened in Daniel. It happened here in Revelation. There's other little examples of it in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is actually meant to offer hope and comfort to those who were undergoing persecution and to serve as a form of protest against those who were using their power to oppress others. Let me say that part again. It was meant to offer hope and comfort to those who were undergoing persecution and to serve as a form of protest against those who were using their power to oppress them. Now, if we look at when John wrote this, which was likely in the second half of the first century, don't want to argue dates, but somewhere in the second half of the first century, when Christianity was beginning to spread more widely across the Mediterranean world, we find that these Christians were being persecuted by the oppressive Roman Empire, right? Which likely means that John's apocalypse, the thing he was revealing, was the hope and comfort of Jesus in the face of persecution and death at the hands of the Romans. That's the most straightforward way of understanding what this book is about and how it works. 
At the end of the day, it's simply a way of seeing what is going on in the present from God's perspective. As part of this, we not only get a behind-the-curtain look at what is going on in the moment 2,000 years ago, but also what it looks like from the finish line, right? If that makes sense. Hopefully it does. It's like standing on top of Emory Peak down in the park. It's the tallest peak down there. Standing up there on Emory Peak, looking back down into the Chisos Basin where the trail that led up there started. And seeing where we started and how far we've come and then where it all led. That's what this is like. I know that's a lot. But with all that said, let's get into the text. So follow along with me as we read from Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the land. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielded its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps these words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down and worshipped at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and all the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Okay, so I know that's a lot, and if I were to try to cover every single ounce of it, we'd be here for weeks. 
We're not going to do that. We're going to aim at a few things. If you have other questions, we can bring those up afterwards, right? So one of the things that apocalyptic literature does is to use symbols that signify greater concepts. This is what we find at the beginning of chapter 22 here. In chapter 21, leading up to this, John had been shown what the new heaven and the new earth looked like, with the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, pictured as a bride and sort of rejoining earth. The bride is then clarified to be the wife of the Lamb. And John has shown that the city has 12 gates, three on each side. And we'll come back to the gates in a minute. Uh, but for now, we need to keep sort of this image in our mind. One other thing worth noting is that there is no temple. That's in chapter 21, but it says there's no temple anymore. Uh, and that the Lord is the temple, giving light to all and drawing everyone to the city. And that the gates will never be shut to those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then John entered the city with the angel. And so set our foundation New Jerusalem and the bride are synonymous, okay? Anytime you hear those, those are just different terms for the church, for the kingdom of God, the people of God. And that's who we are. The place where heaven and earth meet, as I'm always saying, is in us. And when we gather together in our gathering. And the Lamb, of course, is Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and who now rules as King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm always saying at the right hand of the Father as King, right, ruling over everything. Then we see the river of the water of life. When we see this, our minds should be drawn to the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. We find it in John 4. We're not going to read the whole thing because it's long, but specifically in verse 13 where Jesus told the woman this. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then Jesus went on to explain that before long, the temple would no longer be the place of worship, which connects us back to the place where there's no temple, right? And we know that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. There hasn't been a temple since. But Jesus said that people would worship God wherever they were, in spirit and in truth. And so the river we find in the New Jerusalem, which is the church, the river is supposed to be the water of life. But what does that symbolize? What does it mean? Well, the answer is just a little further in John, uh, chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, where we read, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who, who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit, we know, arrived at Pentecost, right? Which is part of how we know that the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth have already begun. The water of life is the Spirit, and the Spirit's already here. It's already flowing through us and out from us into the world. The fact that the river in John's vision flowed from the throne of God right down the middle of the street shows us 
that the Spirit is at the center of everything in the new creation. So we understand the city and the river, but what about the tree of life? Well, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given the tree of life, and it was placed at the center of the garden next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know what happened then. After they ate from the tree of knowledge, Adam and Eve were sent out from the garden so that they could not eat from the tree of life. Not as a punishment, really, but to keep them from compounding the problem and being stuck in an eternally broken state of being. Now, however, the problem has been dealt with. Everything's been taken care of now. Jesus was crucified and buried and resurrected and death has no more power to hold us. Now there is only the tree of life growing on either side of the river. Now, the river is the spirit and the city is the church, right? So the spirit flowing through the church. The tree of life is now available to all freely. Eternal life free to all. And we should recognize also in this that God is life. Life comes from God. In the story of creation, all life comes from God. And God wasn't creating life so much as imparting it, right? Think of how it's described in Genesis 2-7 where God forms man from the dust and then blows into his nostrils the breath of life at which point the man becomes a living creature. What this shows us is that God is life, and that all life comes from God. And in a strange way, we may not fully understand all life is connected to God. Every life, everywhere. Now, notice the leaves of the tree. And this is where we sort of point toward where we're headed in our series on healing. At the end of verse 2, John wrote that they are for the healing of the nations. We tend to think of healing as something we will all experience someday in the sweet by and by, right? But based on what we have seen so far, the city already exists because we are it. And the river is already flowing because the Holy Spirit has already arrived and is flowing in us and through us which means we are already experiencing the first taste of eternal life. It has already begun. And because we are experiencing it, and because the Spirit is flowing in and through us, the church should be where the life that God imparts brings healing. In other words, if it isn't bringing healing, it isn't the church. Pause and let that sink in. If people are not experiencing healing of some sort as a result of being around us, then there's a serious problem. Now, I'm not saying we have to be perfect. Y'all know me, y'all know better, right? <laughs> I'm not saying this only happens when Jesus returns. John's symbolic description here is meant to be taken as present tense, already underway, not complete, but already started. In other words, healing is an already, not yet kind of thing. There's an aspect of healing that is accessible now 
and an aspect that will come to fruition when Jesus returns. And as the city of God, we are responsible for being where the water flows and the tree grows. Not by trying our best and being good, but by surrendering ourselves to the Holy Spirit so that we will experience healing and then offer it to others. This is our purpose, our calling, our responsibility to be the place where people experience healing as a result of coming into contact with the life that God imparts, which grows out of the river of the Spirit flowing in us. Everybody with me? Yeah. I know this is heavy stuff. Okay, so in verses 3 through 5, John described the city as being the place where the throne of God and the Lamb are. The place where they are worshipped, where nothing is accursed. This seems pretty straightforward. Remembering that the city is the church, that it's us, this makes sense. Whether we are alone or in a group of other believers, the church is where God and the Lamb are worshipped. And there's no longer anything accursed because the curse has been lifted by what Jesus accomplished. We see this in Galatians 3, 13-14, where it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The curse is lifted. There is no more curse in the kingdom of God. We may still feel the after effects, like COVID, sort of, but that's why we need healing. That's part of why the spirit has come. Now, I want to address the part in verse 7 where we read, Behold, I am coming soon. But I'm going to come back to it because it pops up a couple more times. So we're going to wait and come back to that. In verse 10, the angel told John not to seal up the words of this prophecy. And we might wonder why he would say this. In Daniel 8 and in Revelation 10, certain prophecies are given, and they're for another time. And then they're told, seal up this prophecy, it's not for now. But in this case, the angel told John not to seal it up because the prophecy he was be giving, being given at that moment was for that time. And the angel even said, for the time is near, which should clue us in. If the angel gave John this prophecy and told him not to seal it because the time is near, well, that means the people John was sharing it with were going to see and experience at least some of what was being said. And they did. Through the angel of the Lord was letting John and his audience know that their suffering under the Romans was not going unnoticed and that the Lord would be with them. And again, this is part of the role of the Holy Spirit to comfort and offer hope and joy in the middle of all the turmoil. And that principle still applies for us. Whatever we're going through, however terrible it might be, the spirit of the living, life-giving God is with us and is for us. It is not sealed away for another time. The healing it brings is not kept on a shelf in heaven. It's available here and now. 
The church is where that takes place. As I said earlier, if it isn't bringing healing, it isn't the church. So in verses 14 through 15, we come back around to the 12 gates that are always open. And according to what John saw, anyone who washed their robe had the right to enter by the gate and enjoy the tree of life. In Revelation 7.14, John had been more specific that they had to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And again, this isn't literal, but it is real. In fact, it's a parallel to what happened with the Israelite slaves in Egypt who covered their doors with the blood of the Lamb for Passover and then were freed from their slavery. In this case, the blood belongs to Jesus, the Lamb that was slain. And it's the blood he shed when he was being tortured and crucified. And the prophet Isaiah had something to say about this as well. In Isaiah 53.5, we read that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Somehow, in a way that none of us probably fully understand, God turned every wound inflicted on Jesus as he was tortured and killed into healing for us, into healing for the nations. And what separates those who experience this from those who are on the outside, those who wash their robes in the blood and enter the gates to enjoy the tree of life, from those John lists as being outside the gates, it's just Jesus. Not that Jesus is acting as a bouncer and keeping out the bad folks. We know that all of us fall into that category. But there are those who acknowledge this and those who don't. Those who have washed their robes, not by being better than those who didn't, but by trusting Jesus. And it's available for anyone. Anyone can have their robes washed. That's why the gates are still open. And there are 12 representing the 12 tribes of Israel to which the promise was made. As non-Israelites, we then have been included through Jesus, brought into the family by adoption. And Paul talked about this in Romans 8, 14 through 16, saying, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the invitation that we see the Spirit and the Bride both making in verse 17. They both invite everyone to come and wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. There's no one that can't do that. Anyone can come. And they both invite everyone to enter by the gates and to drink from the water of life and to enjoy the tree of life without price. There's no cost. There's no earning it. It's free. Which means if we have experienced this, then we are actively promoting it to others. That should be what we're all about actively offering life and healing. This is the church's purpose. 
This is why we're here. Not to be gatekeepers, but to be the invitation to offer the goodness of our King and His kingdom to anyone who will come. Anyone who is thirsty and desires to drink. Anyone who is hungry and desires to eat. To begin experiencing the life that God imparts which brings healing. Is this what people experience when they encounter us? When people in this town think of the church as healing, their first thought. Do they feel invited and welcomed and loved? And do they see Jesus? It's been said the church isn't a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. And the idea behind that statement is that all of us need healing because none of us are perfect. None of us are good enough. But the good news is that we don't have to be because Jesus was and is and is to come. And that's the promise that awaits us. That at some point Jesus will return and our healing will be complete. And this brings us back to the statement Jesus made three times in this final chapter. In verses 7, 12, and 20, Jesus reassures his people, I am coming soon. And this was 2,000 years ago. So when, when is Jesus returning? And the answer is that nobody knows. Only God knows. And until that day, we have the Holy Spirit to keep us company, to hold us, to comfort us, to bring us peace and hope and joy. And we know that when that day does finally arrive, everything will be made right. To be fully healed. To be whole. Which is why the book of Revelation closes with John writing, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And while we look forward with hope to this ultimate end, this ultimate healing where everything is made right, it's in truth a new beginning. And it's already begun. And we know that our purpose until Jesus comes is to be the place where heaven and earth meet place where the river of life flows through the center of who we are. And the people are able to experience the life and healing that God imparts. We pray.